thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. I ask you, Lord God, that as we look into it this morning, that you would bring it alive, make it alive to us, because your word is alive. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so apply it to our hearts in such a way, Lord God, that you would cut deeply into us and show us the things that we need to learn, the things that we can embrace, Lord God, and be comforted by, and the things, uh, Lord, that you want us to apply as we leave this place. We love you, and we give you all the praise and honor and thanksgiving for who you are. Speak to us now, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 13 again this morning, um, just to finish up what we were talking about last week. But before that, I want to begin by uh, telling you about a university professor who tells of being invited to speak at a military base, actually, one December, and there meeting an unforgettable soldier by the name of Ralph. Ralph had been sent to meet him at the airport, and after they had introduced themselves to each other, they headed toward the baggage claim. And as they walked down the concourse, Ralph kept disappearing, once to help an older woman whose suitcase had fallen open, once to lift two toddlers up to where they could see Santa Claus, and again to give directions to someone who was lost. And each time he came back from those endeavors with a big smile on his face. The professor asked him, where did you learn to do that? Do what, Ralph said. Where did you learn to live like that? Oh, Ralph said, during the war, I guess. And then he told the professor about his tour of duty in Vietnam. This was some years ago. About how it was his job to clear minefields. And how he watched his friends blow up before his eyes, one after another. I learned to live between steps, he said. I learned to live between steps. I never knew whether the next one would be my last, so I learned to get everything I could out of the moment between when I picked up my foot and when I put it down again. Every step I took was a whole new world, and I guess I've just been that way ever since. The abundance of our lives, my friends, is not determined by how long we live but by how well we live. I learned to live in between steps. What do you think? You think that we could use a lesson or two in that regard? Last time we looked at a New Testament passage that issues an urgent challenge to live our lives, making the most of every opportunity. As the stability of our world continues to hang in the balance, The urgent call for Christians today is to be a people who are determined, as I said last time, to love without condition and to live without compromise. Remember that statement? And that is the so-called call to arms that Paul sets before us in this chapter, chapter 13 of Romans in verses 8 to 14. Let me read down through those verses again to refresh our memories of the text. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Last week, as we began to unpack this text, I suggested to you that you write five phrases in the margin of your Bibles next to these two paragraphs as reminders of how we should be living in between steps until the Lord returns. These are the statements. Next to verses 8 through 10, it's pay up. Next to verse 11, it's wake up. Next to verse 12, it's suit up. Next to verse 13, we write wise up. And then in the margin next to 14, stand up. Now we only worked our way through two of those. We're going to finish it up today. Let's review though a little bit. The first responsibility that we have is what? Pay up. We have a debt that's due, it says, in verses 8 to 10. And what is that debt, according to those verses? It's the debt of love. We have one ultimate obligation to love our neighbor. It's our duty as followers of Christ. It goes without saying that we must love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But our practical obligation is to our neighbor, love our neighbor as ourselves. When we signed on with Jesus Christ and agreed to follow him, we signed on to love people as he loved people. Amen? Sacrificially, completely, unconditionally, love is an inevitable result of a heart that has been handed over to Christ. It can only happen because the Holy Spirit has moved into our hearts and made himself at home there. That's the only way that it can happen. You're not going to love your neighbor as yourself under your own power. Because it's going to wane. And especially when you get pressed to the wall, such as times like these. Regardless of whether they want it, or whether they deserve it, or return it to you, there is one ultimate obligation, Paul says, that we have. We owe Christ-like love to everyone. Verse 8 in the New Living Translation says it like this. Pay all your debts, accept the debt of love for others. You can never finish paying that one. From this one obligation, this ultimate obligation, we can then draw one ultimate conclusion, and Paul does that. He says that love fulfills the law. Love fulfills God's law. Again, in the New Living Translation, verses 8 through 10 read like this. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill all the requirements of God's law. For the commandments against adultery and murder and stealing and coveting and any other commandment, they're all summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to anyone, so love satisfies all of God's requirements. Now, J.B. Phillips translates verse 10 this way. Quote, love hurts nobody, therefore love is the answer to the law's commands. Interesting way to put it. Love hurts nobody. 
Therefore, love is the answer to the law's commands. That's a huge responsibility, isn't it? There are times, as we all know, when this debt presents itself as an insurmountable wall that we can't get over, virtually impossible to scale. That is precisely why it requires a heart completely infiltrated by Christ's Holy Spirit. Don't try to prepare yourself for it or budget for it because when the payment comes due, it's going to take more than your human capacity and mine that we have in reserve as the following true story reveals. Now, I know I'm going over this point again, but it's absolutely important that I do. True story. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands and people were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, because, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown, into the depths of the sea. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, I believe God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. Okay? The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. And there were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. No Q&A. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights... The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook. And the man who was making his way forward toward me had been a guard one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I 
have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had had again and again needed to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that I stood there, that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars were. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. That's a good statement. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that was outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place, she says. The current started in my shoulder and it raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized that it was not my love. I had tried and I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Corey Ten Boom. See, there is only one way to even think that a person can love like that. Even for Corey Tenboom, and it's found in verse 14, right here in Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way it can happen. The NIV says it this way rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. The message says it like this dress yourselves in Christ. Today's English version puts it, take up the weapons of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Living Translation says, but let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you. If there is a master key 
to the fulfillment of this entire passage, it is in that statement. Let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you. Friends, someday, maybe more than once, you are going to face a situation in which love for your neighbor will be absolutely humanly impossible for you to give. It will be in that moment that the reality that Christ lives in you will either become visible or questionable. What is impossible for us is possible for God. For the God who is in us. J. Hudson Taylor, missionary pioneer and founder of China Inland Mission in 1865, said that there are three stages in the work of God. Impossible, difficult, and done. He is able. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. According to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If we're going to reverse the fallout of a collapsing society in which we are now living, we must become much more prone to demonstrating God's kind of love. Because it's a lesson that Paul says we need to learn fast, quickly, immediately, urgently. Why? Because time is short, it says in verse 11. So, wake up, Paul says in verse 11. Do this knowing that the time is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Time, my friends, is rapidly slipping away. If we miss the opportunities that we get presented to us today, they're likely going to be gone forever. Your Christian life on earth can only be lived once. Once. And as I've heard it said, if you don't have time to do it right, When are you ever going to have time to do it over? Friends, as I said last week, it's high noon for the church. The clock is ticking. The night is about over, says the scripture. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. Pay up the debt to love our neighbors to life is long overdue. Wake up because the end is near. And for crying out loud, Paul says... Suit up because the fight is on. Verse 12. Look at it. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let me ask you a question. Are you dressed and ready? Are you? Is the character of Christ all over you like like a new suit of clothes? This picture of putting on clothes as a symbol of a godly lifestyle was used by the ancient rabbis, by the way, 
When they spoke of true worshipers of God, they referred to them as putting on the cloak of the Shekinah glory. Indicating that they were to reflect and become like the God that they worshipped. You remember, after Moses had been in the presence of God, the scripture said what? That the skin of his face shone, right? That's in Exodus 34, verse 29. His face reflected the light of God's glory. If you and I say that we are followers of Christ and we have the light of Christ living within our souls, shouldn't it be noticeable by somebody? And then begs the question, is it? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, And all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. Amen? And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him and reflect His glory even more. So unlike Moses, when the glory faded away, he had to wear a veil over his face so people wouldn't see that glory fading away. Paul says, we're just the opposite the more that we walk in Christ, knowing that he lives within us, the brighter our faces shine with his glory. Amen? Amen. The late Chuck Colson was right on target when he said, if there are so many Christians in the United States, then why aren't we affecting our world? Good question. In one of my favorite books that I ever read by him, way back in, in the late 80s, in his book, Against the Night, He wrote this, and I quote, We treat our faith like a section of the newspaper or an item in our things to do today list. He says, We file religion in our schedules between relatives and running. It's just one of the many concerns competing for our attention. Not that we aren't serious about it. We go to church and attend Bible studies, but we're just as serious about our jobs and physical fitness. Then he says, if Christianity is true, then it cannot be simply a file drawer in our crowded lives. It must be the central truth from which all of our behavior, relationships, and philosophy flow. That's a mouthful of words. Serious words. You see, this battle that we're in is serious business. It's no backyard brawl, my friends. This is out-and-out warfare. And warfare requires a couple of things, doesn't it? First of all, it requires a strong commitment. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says this, And as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up. The New American Standard says entangled. And the literal Greek word means to weave. Okay? Don't get tied up and tangled and have the affairs of this life all woven through your life, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. You can't win a war, the Bible says, if you're sleeping with the enemy. The enemy is the world system, which is antagonistic toward God. Amen? If you're all tied up with worldly affairs and that system and constantly enmeshed in the system that Paul talks about, he says, get yourselves out of it. Get out of it. Some people have so woven themselves into the culture and the culture has so woven themselves into them that they're so much a part of the warp and the woof that they've become indistinguishable from the rest of the fabric. 
They need the jaws of life sometimes to extricate them from the spiritual wreckage. The message puts Romans 13, 12 in plain terminology. Here it is, quote, get out of bed and get dressed. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about, unquote. The Living Bible says it like this. Quit the evil deeds of darkness and put on the armor of right living. So strip off the sins that easily knock you off course, knock you off balance. It says in Hebrews 12:1, right? And put aside the filthy rags you used to live in because those were old clothes, weren't they? They were your old clothes, the clothes of your dark life before Christ. And guess what? They don't fit you anymore. They don't fit us anymore. Get rid of them. Put on the new ones that Christ gave you at salvation. Galatians 3.27 says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We need to remember that every single second of every single day, every single second of every single day, you know, sometimes I will look back at some of the baptism videos that I've produced here, spent hours making to advertise when we have baptisms. We haven't seen them in a while because I just haven't done it. But when I look back at some of that footage, there's some pretty emotional footage of people I baptized with faces that were at that time reflecting hearts full of joy and eyes full of tears and an incredible love of throbbing in their souls for the things of God. And then I look at their faces and, and I know where they are today and they're not even walking with Christ at all and their faces don't even re- resemble the same pictures that I'm looking at on the screen. And I'm like, what happened? What happened to them? You see, there are two aspects to being clothed with Christ. There's this positional aspect and a practical aspect. There is something that is already true about our spiritual life and something that should be true about our spiritual life. There is a holiness that we already have because of what Christ has done, amen? And there's a holiness that we should continue to strive for, that he asks us to be responsible for, that he asks us to be part of, working out our salvation in fear and trembling. We have been declared righteous for sure, positionally. Yet we must be committed to working out that righteousness in our everyday lives. That's why the Apostle Paul urged the believers at Colossae, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Look at verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all these things become visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. 
For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, spiritual warfare requires a strong commitment. And secondly, it requires the right equipment. A spiritual war requires spiritual weaponry, doesn't it? That means we need to strip ourselves of our worldly clothes and put on some armor, some spiritual armor. The armor of light, it says in Romans. Suit up, Paul says, because you're going to need it. This is a serious battle, my friends. It's a spiritual battle. Make no mistake about it. And a spiritual battle requires spiritual weapons. For though we walk in the flesh, the scripture says, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. Ultimately, folks, we're not going to win the battle with our politics or with our polemics or with any other humanly based machinations. You want to use that word. We're not going to drum this stuff up. We're not going to counter the spiritual uh, attacks that are against us with our own things that we're coming up with, our own schemes. That's what the word machinations means. It means your own schemes. This war will not be mediated by anyone other than Jesus Christ. Amen? And we have him living in us, so we need to follow his lead, don't we? We need to clothe ourselves with Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, if you're still in Ephesians, look at this. You know this passage of Scripture. We know it so well. I wonder God would show up and say, you know this passage so well. How come you haven't done it? Finally, be strong in the Lord in verse 10. And in the strength of his might, put on, just, just circle that right there. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes, the machinations, the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, and there are many, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. The armor we need to stand firm in the battle is Christ Himself. Christ Himself. In the words of Donald Gray Barnhouse, put on Christ and you put on the whole armor of God. Okay, we just went through that whole armor passage. We listed all of those things. But it's very simple. When you put on Christ, you put all that on. 
Put on the whole armor of God and you put on Christ. The best way I know of to grasp this truth is to see it actually unfold before your eyes. Every single piece of armor that I just read to you in that list is personified by Christ. Look at the slide behind me. Now I'm going to ask you to keep that up for a while in case people are taking notes. Gird your loins with truth. Who's the truth? Jesus is the truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. And there are the scriptures that correspond to that. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Who's our peace? Christ is our peace. Taking up the shield of faith. Hebrews 12, 2 says he's the author and finisher of our faith. Take the helmet of salvation. He is our salvation. There is no name under heaven by which we must be saved, given among men, but Jesus. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Who's the Word of God? Jesus is the Word of God. You see, clothed in truth, we have nothing to fear. Dressed in Christ's righteousness, no accusation against us can stick. And by the way, the next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, right? When we are wearing the right shoes, the gospel of peace, we don't get our toes stepped on, do we? And we don't get tripped up either. Psalm 119, 165 says this, Those who love thy law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. With salvation as our helmet, our mind is no longer vulnerable to the system of the world. Our intellect is not only stretched and nourished by the truth, but it's protected against the emptiness of pseudo-intellectualism. The sorriest spectacle in the world, wrote Donald Gray Barnhouse, is a highly educated lost soul. With Christ as our shield of faith, our faith is impenetrable and armed with the word of God, we will not fail. The word of God will accomplish the work of God, won't it? So, are you clothed in Christ? Because if not, you're fighting a losing battle. You need to switch sides. If you are, then listen. Listen to this. Stop acting like the enemy. Stop acting like the enemy if you're clothed in Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When? In this present age. That's what it says in Titus 2. In this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You think you're going to live like that when you get to heaven? Well, yeah, that'll be easy, won't it? There'll be no sin there. But God gives us the Holy Spirit to live like that now, in the present age. So suit up, and another thing, get smart, right? Wise up, Paul says, wise up because the day has dawned. Look at verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. In other words, give an honest impression of yourselves to the world. Conduct yourselves in a manner which is characteristic of the name Christian, children of the Most High God. Now, isn't that important to us? Shouldn't it be? Again, J.B. Phillips puts it like this. 
Let us live cleanly as in the daylight, not in the, the delights of getting drunk or playing with sex, or, nor yet quarreling or having jealousy. But let us be Christ's men and women from head to foot. Because we're clothed in Christ. But too often that's not always the case, right? We've forgotten some area of clothing. And we're the only ones, you know, everybody else can see it. We, we don't even see it half the time. We've got this, like this thing this morning, okay? I'm standing over there and I'm like, I look down at my coat and there's only one button on my coat. There's two buttonholes, but there's one button. I'm like, what happened to the button? I wonder how many people are noticing that when I'm up there preaching. Somewhere along the line, the button fell off of my coat. You don't want that to happen with your spiritual life, my friends. You don't want to be missing the shield of faith or the helmet of salvation. You don't want your loins not girded with the truth. You can't leave it off. You have to put on all of Christ, amen? We've got this crazy idea that we can bear Christ's name and live like the world. We can't. We, where do we get that notion anyway? Not from God's word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. That's what the message says. Friends, don't misunderstand me or the Bible. Sinless perfection is absolutely not possible, but complacency towards sin is not acceptable. Okay? Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 here. We should be decent and true in everything we do so that everyone can approve of our behavior. This is the New Living Translation. Don't participate in wild parties, getting drunk or in adultery and immoral living or in fighting and jealousy, but let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you. Paul says, lose the unabashed partying. Forget the unrestrained sexual addiction and the uncontrolled anger. It's not you. That stuff looks terrible on you. Looks awful. Because it doesn't suit you. 1 Peter chapter 4 I'm going to wrap it up here pretty soon. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time is already past. That's already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You don't have to live like that anymore. So wise up, Paul says. Instead of stooping to the world, finally he says, stand up. Stand up for me. Because the time is now. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision to the, for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That means stop 
trying to get away with the things that you know that God would not approve of. Amazing thing has happened. Moral relativism has crossed over. It has infiltrated the church. But friends, what God calls unacceptable is still unacceptable. What God calls sin, he still calls sin. It is not a matter of personal choice. The rules don't change from your life to mine. What provisions are you making for gratifying your fleshly desires? What provisions am I making? Here's the answer, Paul says, make no provisions. Say it with me. Make no provisions. Don't make it easy for the evil one. We can indulge our eyes. We can indulge our pride. We can indulge our appetites in a million different ways. That's what's available to us right now. That's what modern technology has provided for us. But the challenge ought not to be in figuring out how close we can come, how far we can go in indulging ourselves and still be a Christian. That's the low road, my friends. But rather how deep and how long and how wide and how high we can grow in Christ Jesus. That's the high road. Clothe yourselves with Christ and continually be plugging up the inroads that tempt us to sin. That's a hard call. That's a really hard call. But as long as we're in this body, the presence of sin will be with us. But as long as we're clothed with Christ, the power of sin will not take over us. Amen? We can stand up under the attack. That's what Romans 6 says in verse 12. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its lustful desires. Do not let any part of your body become a tool of wickedness to be used for sinning. Instead, give yourselves completely to God since you have been given new life and use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. Amen? All right. A collapsing world needs a comprehensive cure. Jesus is the cure for you and for me and for everybody else out there in the world. And you and I, if we're following him, are the ones that can administer that cure to them. You talk about needing a vaccine. That world needs a vaccination. It needs a vaccination of Jesus Christ. So by paying up in love, by waking up to the call, by suiting up, for the war, and by wising up to the day, and by standing up to the truth, we can see that happen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful text of Scripture. Probably so much more we could unpack from it, but Lord, you have given us enough for a lifetime to apply. I pray, our Father, that the Holy Spirit would, would take control of us, and that we would walk in step with him, glorifying your name, and reflecting the Shekinah glory of your Father who is in heaven. We pray it for the sake of the kingdom and in Jesus' name, amen.